Welcome to futureofuschinatrade.com. I'm Molly Castellazzo, and I'm joined today by Jim Owens. Jim recently retired as chairman and chief executive officer of Caterpillar and currently serves as a director of the Peterson Institute for International Economics and the Council on Foreign Relations. I caught up with him after an Economic Club of Phoenix luncheon to talk about the importance of thoughtful, intellectual policymaking. Jim shares his concerns that American policymakers are not making politically difficult yet necessary decisions, and that thought leaders are teaching, but not preaching, the virtues of free trade. Now to my discussion with Jim. Do we have trade promotion authority for the president? If the president of the United States and his administration is not in a position to negotiate a trade agreement in good faith with a foreign country, uh, and, and, and if all they can do is go negotiate it and then present it to the Congress for 435 congressmen and 100 senators to amend it, then we have no ability to negotiate anything. I mean, and we're, we're just, uh, and right now, I mean, the, it, that authority expired. President Obama hasn't asked for it again yet. The business community always has to work very hard championing to get that done because labor unions, generally speaking, are vehemently opposed to trade. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm astounded that I mean, I'm on the PWAP with their labor leaders and their business people. You know, the president has a goal to double exports in the next 10 years. Next five. That's a reasonable goal, particularly because 09 was such a bad year. But, you know, the right way to start maybe would be to pass the three free trade agreements that are already negotiated and ready to take to the Congress. But we don't want to take them because there are so many congressmen who, for political populist reasons, are against trade. They're against all trade. Colombia and Panama, for example, are two of our strongest allies in Latin America. We already get to export to our country duty-free. So we're not even going to lose anything by signing these agreements. And by signing them, we increase our exports to them because we enhance our competitiveness versus other countries. And with all of that, and all I'm talking about blue in the face, the FLCIO is against me. This is nonsense. It's political nonsense. And it's, you know, but they represent... You know, seven or eight percent of the American workforce. But they have a wildly disproportionate influence on things like that in Washington and with the Democratic Party. They've become captive of a small minority of the left. It's, you know, the, the Democrats of John Kennedy were a we can, yes we can, positive, global competitive party. The Democrats of Bill Clinton were, I mean, because he pushed for NAFTA. Probably couldn't have gotten done. Bush won, negotiated it. Probably couldn't have achieved it. But who thinks that, you know, every econometric model ever seen says the citizens of all three countries, Mexico, the United States, and Canada, benefited, and more jobs were created right. than all. And who, who in their right mind thinks we'd have been better off if we'd have kept the poor Mexicans down there impoverished without a trade agreement? More would have come across the board. You would have done it if you were there, and I would have done it if I was there. And why aren't we American citizens thinking a little more broadly? So I guess the question then that comes to my mind is is when I hear you, you talk about the politics, the deeply entrenched politics of it, you know, the power that the AFL-CIO has. I wonder 
Well, even How here's, will the, change here's the top two leaders, President Clinton and Secretary of State Clinton, in the primaries of the Democratic Party, going around Ohio and blaming every job loss on NAFTA. They know better. Right. It's embarrassing. And here's the academic community. Most of them are liberal economists, liberal politically. They didn't speak up. Where were we? I mean, I enjoy asking this question at MIT and Harvard and, and you know, all the schools that I visit. You quit teaching comparative advantage in economics? You keep, quit teaching that trade is a win-win proposition? It's good? Where were we? Did you hear, did I hear anything from you? Or from the economists or academics across the country, or the National Association of Business Economists. I said, why weren't all of our, all of us speaking up about that? And do you ever get an answer, or what do you think the answer is to I that think question? The answer, I mean, I think post Enron, and maybe it's high salaries or whatever. But CEOs have kind of hunkered down; they're running their business, and they're ignoring public policy. We're not going to be a great country by ignoring the right kind of policies. And we right. need to be well thought out. It, it's not sort of a populist thing. I don't expect the average citizen to know how to design a tax code yeah. to give us good economic efficiency and to drive savings and investment that our country needs. But I expect thoughtful, intellectual economists and business people working together to be able to do that for the common good. I get worried when we're going to have, you know, half the people don't pay any tax. That you know, there's a little sacrifice involved in getting to a balanced budget. But there's a, a train wreck that's going to happen if we let things spiral out of control. Would you rather have a little sacrifice or a train wreck? Right. Sure. It's like today's vote here in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like in your PowerPoint slide, though you felt like sort of the optimistic picture for Caterpillar and, and I guess for the economy as a whole in terms of... The highest probability is we will have a significant, a positive recovery from the worst recession since the right. depression. So do you, in, in, the, in getting to that, do you see policies changing or, or how, well, how then given all of There's what very short term and there's long term things. Uh -huh. I think uh, in every recession since the Depression, we've had a pretty sharp rebound following a serious recession. You know, left to their own economies want to grow and rebound. So we're coming off a very, very severe recession. We applied fiscal and monetary stimulus. Businesses are responding. Eventually, we get a rebound. Now, the question is, really comes to the sustainability of rebound. In order for our country to get back to full employment, we're going to need to grow at three and a half to four percent per annum for about three or four, five years, just to get back to the full employment that we were enjoying at, in the 06-07 time. You know, I think that's what we aspire to achieve. Sure. And, and we create real jobs, real opportunity. You know, our investments in our country. You know, I thought I had longer. I'd have talked about this some. I mean. We have spent, our, our rate of growth in, in infrastructure investment in our country has been about half the rate of GDP growth since 1970. So we kind of built out the highway, state highway system and kind of geared down. Well, you know, I go to China, 
they are, you know, in 10 years, they're going to have better ports, better roads, better logistics parks, better railroads, better air traffic control systems, better airports, and a better power grid than we've got. This is the backbone of how you compete in the world market. So who is thinking about this for our country? Building that infrastructure before they even have the businesses that want to invest in. This is like the Field of Dreams in Ireland. They will come. So they're building airports. I mean, you got two flights a day, the damn thing will take 150. Exactly. There's no car rental there yet. Right. Right. <laughs> but they're, you know, they're, they're beginning to, they're investing in themselves. Without investment, you don't have real income growth. Without real income growth, standard living starts to go down. So I'm worried. I'm worried, you know, stupid tax laws. I mean, I can talk to smart people in Washington, and they say, oh, I get that. You know, we can't. If we just get rid of deferral, keep the highest rate, doesn't work. You don't even have to be really smart to understand that. But get people to change it. There's no political constituency. You know, that's why this can't be done by, well, let's get everybody to agree. First off, nobody's, who cares? The average citizen is not going to get into the international tax code. So we need people that are really do understand it, that are really capable. I offered to the Obama administration, they've got a team working on it, and I said, look, I'll give you Caterpillar, Alcoa, IBM, Procter & Gamble, GE. There's five big companies, we operate all over the world. I will give you our tax directors for as many days as you want, and we're totally transparent. I want you to understand where we're paying taxes and why. Because Larry Summers said to me, Jim, you guys are cheating the tax system, all, uh, not you, but corporations, because all these taxes are paid in Switzerland. That's where we have a holding company, because it's under EU law, you can minimize your tax by locating your headquarters here. But if you get rid of deferral, then I, and I got to pay 35% right away anyway, I would probably first off do things close my Swiss office. I'll just pay the Germans and the French and the Belgians. But you won't even get it. And if I don't, you know, if you tax me at a higher rate than they are taxed, then I can't compete there anymore. And you don't want that. Because me being there allows me to export there, and that creates jobs here. And a lot of, you know, more than half the people who work for Caterpillar in the United States work here because we're a global company. But even somebody like Larry Summers doesn't understand the fact that the, the code he really drives it. behavior. He gets it, but you know, they've got, you know, who, who elected him? Did the business community elect him? No. The labor guys put feet on the street, they're against it. You know, it's, it's a protectionist, nationalistic voice out there that's, that's getting, overriding good, rational economic policy. That's my biggest concern. Right. I mean, I, there's no question. There are people that cheat the tax system. They ought to be vigorously prosecuted, in my opinion. But we need to have a good tax system that doesn't drive unintended consequences. Right, right. And I, you know, you got to start with how big do we like do we like our government to be for openers? And then once you've decided that, what services do we think government is definitely providing as opposed to the private sector? And then how are we going to pay for it? And what would be the most efficient way? I mean, I, I bring up things, for example, gas tax. I think a tax on gas at the pump wouldn't impair our ability to compete in world markets, would drive right behavior in terms of carbon consumption. 
would diminish our reliance on the Middle East and could help pay for the infrastructure investment our country desperately needs. And I am told repeatedly, Jim, that's not that's not on the table. Right. It's not politically driven. So uh, why don't we go and help the American public understand why that's so important? There's no free lunch. But that will you don't you don't have to set the rules to tell Detroit how to make cars. People will choose more fuel efficient cars if the gas plane price is three fifty or four dollars instead of two dollars. We're very smart, you know. And I'm all for let's let our citizens help us get good decisions made. But through price signals. And if you're worried about the regressive nature of it, you can raise the threshold on income tax, or you can do a lot of things you can do. But we are not doing anything that's politically difficult. That is a recipe for disaster.